Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Uh, today, uh, I have the honor of having retired Special Forces Major Rusty Bradley back on the show, and he'll be co-hosting for this episode. Uh, so thank you for coming back on. We appreciate it. Um, we got really good feedback from the last episode, so I know people would like to hear more from you. Thanks, sir. So, you know, over the, uh, a few days ago, there was a very uh, tragic event that happened in Orlando. Everybody's talking about it. I'm sure you guys know about it by now. Uh, 49 people were killed. I forget the exact number that were injured at a, in a shooting at a nightclub. Um, the guy who was responsible for the shooting was killed uh, by SWAT police officers. And... Well, first and foremost, I want to send my condolences out to the family members of those who were killed. Obviously, it's a terrible event that uh, no one wants to see things like this happen. So whenever these things do happen, you know, it, it sparks a political debate. Um, you know, people are choosing sides of a, a political argument that, that seems to never really go anywhere. Just kind of a lot of back and forth as different. Uh, kind of tragedies take place over the years. So what what they do know about this guy is that he was someone the FBI had pegged as an ISIS supporter. So th this is a guy they knew about. I'm not exactly sure what the details were, but, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a problem and there needs to be a little clarity on how to move forward. You know, the country seems to be divided on on how to properly combat these, this ideology because that's what it really is. It's it's not just, uh, you know, one or two random attacks. You know, this happens across Europe. It happens across Africa. It happens across the Middle East. And I think it's getting to the point where people are getting tired of it. And what is interesting enough, a few days ago I recorded an interview with two former Israeli Special Forces soldiers and we kind of spoke about this very thing, and this was before the shooting happened. And, and and we'll play that interview in a few minutes for you guys. But one of the things I brought up was it's interesting how a lot of countries criticize Israel for the way they treat the Palestinians and 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 some of their methods. But the truth is, this type of Orlando-style shooting that happened, they live under the constant threat of that at all times. And... Uh, you had an interesting take on that, uh, and you you brought up the uh, the quote where you know it's about the it's not about the critic, it's about the guy who's in the arena, and um, and I think that was a very interesting point to bring up. Well, first of all, it, it's easy for us to be critics and sit back and point the finger at Israel. Um, when we don't live in their shoes, when you're surrounded by enemies who have <clears throat> twice in the last century tried to wipe you out, uh, you live in a constant terrorism threat every single day. Um, you are mandated, focused, morally obligated to protect your people in your way of life. There's a microcosm of people in the United States that do that in the military and in our civil servants. But people who want to be a critic, 
have never been the ones who had to assume the responsibility and the mantle of protecting freedom and keeping a country of 350 million people safe. I say that because when you're, when you look at, you know, the Israeli special forces, the Shireet or the Syret, uh, 13 guys, the Navy commandos, um, they live every day like we lived on September 12th after we were attacked because they know that they constantly are under um, some sort of attack and barrage. And when you're surrounded by enemies and your back's against the sea, you don't have any choice. You have to make the hard decisions. The ulterior is unacceptable. Um, I don't know. It's kind of hard to digest because I completely sympathize with what these guys are trying to do. And it's only until the problem reaches mainstream America that they are going to have to sit back and realize that what we are telling them as the warrior class and the people who are are trying to protect our people and our way of life, what we're telling them is true. And unfortunately it takes events like what happened in Orlando for us to get the American people to understand that there's 1.2 billion Muslims practicing Muslims in the world if 5% of them are radical jihadists, then that's 75 million people that are sworn to kill Westerners and anybody who are not practicing Muslims. And if you look at any of the um, conflicts that are going on in the world, that's not even true because they butcher their own people if they're not aligned with their ideology and their method of thinking. So there's always going to be evil in the world. The hard part to digest for us as a people and as a government is that you can't, you can't always stop evil, but you got to try. And what that means is that when you look at people who have been successful at mitigating it, like the Israelis, you know, El Al is one of the safest airlines in the world, but they have some of the toughest security measures in place of any any nation in the world. And everyone is quick to stereotype, but yet apparently they're doing something right because they haven't had an airline that has been hijacked or, uh, you know, blown up because they're taking absolutely no chances and when you look, say, for example, you look back at World War II, whether, you know, at the beginning of World War II, we didn't want to get involved in World War II. We wanted to be an isolationist nation. We didn't want to get involved in the war in Asia or the war in Europe. And the problem is, is when you stick your head in the sand and you hope that the, the wolf is going to go away and not see the rest of the bird sticking out of the ground, he's going to eventually come and attack you. And that's eventually what happens is they find the weakness. They find where you're 
weakest point is, and that's where they're going to get at you. Unfortunately, there's a lot of us who are in the counterterrorism and the insurgency, counterinsurgency business that have been saying for a long time that this is exactly the type of attack that are going to be the new model for how the insurgents and the terrorists are going to attack the United States. Malls, athletic stadiums, um, you know, nightclubs, any gathering of a large amount of Americans where there's a low security threat is exactly what these people are going to prey upon. And I'm really surprised at this point that the next 9-11 has not happened because a large group of insurgents have attacked 10 major cities and 10 major malls with hundreds or thousands of people trapped inside them. And they've gone on a killing spree that unfortunately is the soft underbelly of who we are as a nation and it's going to happen. And this is just a spark. The insurgency of Iraq morphed from insurgent forces directly attacking the military, the American military to attacking the coalition forces to attacking the Iraqi forces. And when they couldn't attack them without a lot of casualties, they mo- then moved to the soft underbelly. They started attacking the support for- forces for the Americans, attacking the police stations, the polling stations, the public servant, continue to change until they find the place where they can have the most sensationalist terrorist effect and not have such a large loss of their forces and capabilities. We've got to be prepared for that because that's exactly a snapshot of what Orlando is. It's not going to be long before attacks on malls and sports stadiums and movie theaters become commonplace. Any area where there's a large gathering of uh, American people, that's where you're going to find that the insurgencies are going to morph their attacks towards to reach the deepest parts of the United States populace. People are going to continue to be critics and fight to um, object to the security measures that need to take place. But what happened in Orlando is a very clear snapshot of what the insurgents are going to do. They're going away from focusing on airlines and having people trapped in a steel titanium tube, and they're going to go where the easier targets are. And I'm just very thankful that we haven't seen a large-scale mass attack on U.S. soil because we've been telling everybody from the Department of Justice to Department of Homeland Security that that's where the next major attacks are going to be. It'll be a synchronized multi-level attacks on say U.S. malls around the United States from insurgents who've snuck across the border and it's going to be catastrophic because they'll hit in 10 major cities all at one time in the same day and their hope, hope is to paralyze the U.S. citizenry and the U.S. government and, in, and instill fear and terror into changing what we do and how we do it.
the way you get around that is you you become tougher. You become a harder target. And that's why when you look at the Israelis, people are quick to criticize. But when you're doing a good job and you're doing it right, people are always going to want to criticize you. Right. And, you know, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, and I've seen it online a couple of times. I'm not exactly sure where, but, you know, people are sharing it on Facebook or whatever, Twitter. So... Someone, it, I forget the exact wording, but it's something like, you know, there have been a whole bunch of mass shootings in the last couple of years, yet when it's uh, a, a Muslim uh, man, woman who's carrying out these attacks, then it becomes a big issue. But what I feel like they're not taking into consideration is that it's not just like, obviously all, you know, attacks like this are something we don't want to happen, but... When it is someone who is inspired by ISIS or or one of these radical groups, it is basically a continuation of their war against the West uh, in a way that they can fight it. You know, they're they're not going to fly planes over Manhattan and and drop bombs. What they're going to do is they're going to attack these easy to hit targets in places where the security isn't so strong. And... I think that's what the main difference would be to people who are saying, oh, how come because it's a Muslim, you know, you're you're making a big deal out of it. Um, It's a big deal because this is a continuation of what's been happening uh, since the rise of Islamic terrorism. And I think that's an important uh, distinguishing point that people need to understand. And... And and even when I uh, interviewed these uh, these two former Israeli special operations guys, they're both from a a company called Agilite Tactical, uh, based out of Israel. And there was an attack in Israel a few days before we conducted our interview, which was on uh, last Friday, I believe. So these things are commonplace in a lot of places in the world. And what people don't understand in America is. You know, that's the reality in a lot of places. So now that it's happening here at home, now people are like, wait a minute, you know, it, it is a threat uh, that exists out there. And there's no way to tell when it's going to hit or where it's going to hit. You just kind of have to try and mitigate that uh, threat as much as you can. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, you've got multiple sets. of you, you got multiple types of target sets. You've got foreign and you got domestic. You've got to be able to break them down, and each one of them goes into a subcategory, just like we do when we do our targeting analysis. You've got one leader, and he's got all these people that support him, and you go after taking that cell apart in a very structured way. We've got to be able to do the same thing. You've got domestic threats from groups and individuals, You've got to be able to go after them differently than you go after your, or in some cases the same as you go after your foreign threat. You know, another thing we have to concern ourselves with is with with radical jihad is that it can take any form and any face. That's what makes it really difficult to fight or combat and, when you have a political climate that is so concerned with political labelings and they are afraid to 
once you can actually find a target to do anything about it, that's the real difficulty I think that we face right now and where we're at with, um, with dealing with global jihad. The other thing is, is that I think anybody who has ever served in the last 15 years in these wars understands one thing. If the enemy does not fear you, they don't respect you. And we have to go back to an environment where we cannot be afraid to conduct violence on our enemies in such a way that it paralyzes them with the very fear that they're trying to poison us with. Until the enemy is so scared to close their eyes and take a you know, to get any sleep or to rest until they're so concerned about whether somebody's going to turn on them from their own organization. We have to embrace violence on these groups and people to the place to where it has to be understood. People have to be willing to accept that that is exactly that is the only course of action that will ever deal with a radical ideology. You cannot convert these people. You cannot negotiate with these people. You cannot do anything to them or for them. They believe in their core of who they are, that they are, they they are mandated to kill us and confront that and overwhelm it and overcome it is you have to kill them in a manner that they reach the primal instinct of actually being scared for your life. And what's interesting is how, you know, the vast majority of the the insurgent commanders that we ran into on the battlefield for all of their propaganda, they never wanted to die for the cause. They always wanted people that had been brainwashed or they wanted people that they had coerced into doing uh, their bidding to die for them. People seem to forget that and understand that this is not an entire movement of people who are willing to die. It is a, um, I, I'm trying to think of the right word. It It is a, means of which they manipulate people who are desperate for something, poverty-stricken, whatever it is, to give them some sort of belief that they'll, they might not gain anything in this life, but they'll have something in the next life. That's the reason that um, radical jihad flourishes in, in slums around the world, and it flourishes in uh, even in some of the most affluent places, because when you have people who have absolutely everything, but it doesn't give them any joy, they have to find something that gives them meaning and purpose. And they manipulate that by finding something that gives meaning and purpose to that individual 
in order to get them to do their evil bidding. And that's really, like I said, that's in my opinion, that's what it comes down to. You know, there's three parts to any insurgency. You've got the actual insurgent itself. You've got the auxiliary and the underground. You've got to have a support mechanism typically for insurgent groups to be able to flourish and thrive. And people are using our freedoms against us in order to be able to try to turn our country into the horrors that they either fled from or they created. And we've got to get away from that. People have to understand that they're not going to be satiated. They can't be talked to. They can't be reasoned with. And the only way to do that is to unfortunately embrace a level of security and violence with which they feel like they cannot be successful in their attacks inside the United States. Yeah. And you know, part of the issue that I see is, um, when you, you said earlier that, you know, we need to have that mentality or that Israel has that mentality of September 12th, you know, the day after the towers fell, when everybody was united and everybody felt like action needed to be, t- needed to be taken against those who were responsible. Um, so, and I, I actually remember those couple of weeks uh, after the towers fell and it felt, even though it was a, a, a terrible event and, you know, a, a lot of people were killed and it was really the worst attack in American history, we came together afterwards. And it was almost like, you know, not to sound corny, but we were united in our purpose and our thinking. And it, it actually felt good. Um, and when we have, you know, there's so much division and, and people are... People who are not qualified or people who do not understand this kind of human interaction with it, which is war and and dealing with an enemy who fights you not overtly but covertly kind of these lone wolf attacks um random stabbings, random shootings all around the world. I don't think this guy was directly involved with ISIS or any group, but he was definitely inspired by them. And, you know, that and it, it it's interesting. You can actually look at different points in history where nations had to deal with some form of what we would now consider terrorism or an insurgency. And they were either annihilated and the answer was just pure violence or it was done in a way to defeat the ideology with kind of like a counter ideology. Uh, so to speak. So it's a very, it's almost like it's, it's complicated, but it's not very complicated to individuals who know this, who, who've lived this, uh, like yourself, you know, like you said, the, anyone who served the past 15 years already understands a lot of how this works because they were overseas fighting against it, you know? So I just think it's an interesting dynamic that, uh, the people making, the decisions at the highest levels don't seem to have the a clear cut strategy on how to take care of this problem. I'm completely with you. I remember September 11th 
you know, as a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division, watching the towers when they came down and thinking, you know, these people have no idea what they they've just awoken a, a sleeping giant. We've got a couple of problems that we face that need to be rectified. Our political leadership needs to be comprised of people who come from the military ranks and know and understand what goes on outside the United States of America. The second thing is we've become a victim of our own success because when you think of the size of the United States, 350 million people in this country, less than four-tenths of one percent comprise the entire military and all the branches of service. So that's 1.2 million soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen and of those, maybe 250 to 300,000 are actual combatants, people who've been on patrol, been in combat, actually saw fighting. So when you've got 300,000 people representing a military, or excuse me, representing a government of 350 million people, and we've still somehow, by the grace of God, managed to not only enforce our strategic policies, but keep our, keep our country safe. People now think that we can continue to minimize the military and make it smaller and smaller and smaller because we've been so successful. And part of the problem is, is that the reason that our military has had such a high uh, casualty rate and while we're having people are having a lot of PTSD issues is simply because the same people are having to go back over and over and over and over and the military is not big enough to deal with these issues. So going back to the point of your your comment, we've done a great job at keeping the country safe, but our leaders don't have the experience or the advisors to steer them in the right direction. So they think, number one, we can continue to downsize the military. And number two, we can continue to disengage what goes on in the world and think that we can buy people's alliances and allegiance. And that's absolutely not the case. The truth is, is the United States is making the same mistakes that the Germans made in World War II because Germany became so technologically advanced that they couldn't mass produce basic weapon systems in a timely manner. And when they became so engaged globally that they couldn't replace their equipment when they were in the heat of warfare. We are relying on drone technology and advanced technology and IT technology, and we're getting away from the basics, the basics of sticking a bayonet in another human being and forcing your enemy to capitulate. Those are the things, like I told you about with the art of war with Sun Tzu and with Clausewitz, that those are the only ways you win wars, and that's how you transcend insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. You've got to defeat the ideology that creates the insurgency, but you can't do that until you've killed so many people that people are afraid to ally themselves with that organization. 
People don't understand ISIS. They don't understand the schism between the Sunni and the Shia. They don't understand what goes on outside the continental United States. And people better start paying attention to what's going on in the world. Otherwise, they're going to live to regret it. Now we'll get into the interview I conducted with members of Agilite Tactical, who are both former Israeli special operations soldiers. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, today we have a special episode. Uh, I have two former enlisted Israeli Special Forces soldiers who are still serving in uh, a reserve capacity. And the first, uh, his name is Ellie Isaacson. And Ellie, among a few other people, founded a company called Agilite and served in the IDF uh, Recon Paratrooper Battalion during the Second Infatada and the Second Lebanon War. He was also a spokesperson for the IDF in 2008. And our second guest is Eric, is also a member of Agilite, who was an Israeli Navy SEAL serving in their equivalent unit, Shayet 13, for five years. Both Eric and Ellie served as lone soldiers, soldiers who were raised elsewhere. Uh, Ellie grew up in the UK, Eric in North Carolina, who serve in Israelis' military with no immediate family in the country. Several of the Agilite founders and staff were IDF loan soldiers in different elite units, and they carried dual citizenships. So, guys, I just want to thank you guys for coming on for this episode, man. How's it going? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Everything's good. Cool, cool. So, so you ser- so, uh, Ellie... You served during the second Infatada. What what exactly was that for people who won't know? Well, the second Infatada was a period between the end of 2000, uh, pretty much to 2003, when it was just a crazy period in Israel. It started off with a series of terrorist attacks. And it got to a stage and it was literally just daily suicide bombings, um, daily, daily uh, shooting attacks. And uh, I uh, actually joined up. I was due to go into the army uh, in November 2000, and I remember everything just kicked off in a big way. Um, the, one of the main, one of the first things that happened, one of the major incidents was two uh, Israeli reserve soldiers took a wrong turning into an Arab village, uh, literally on camera. Um, they were literally beaten to death by a, by a mob and thrown out of a window um, for the world to see. And I, I remember I was, I was back in the UK, I was a month before my service, and just watching this happen and just seeing everything going nuts um, after a relatively quiet period. Uh, Israel had already left Lebanon, I think, in, I think it was 99, and there'd been a sort of a year, year and a bit of, of quiet. And which is one of the incidents that I saw happening as I was about to go in. I forget that within two and a half years, we were on a mission to capture one of those guys who performed the lynch and killed those Israeli soldiers. So it was, really came full circle, but it was a... It was a really uh, insane period to be in the army. Nightly missions. It was. Uh, it was intense. And Eric, were you were you in at the time as well at that during the same period? No, I actually uh, enlisted in two thousand nine. But uh, the second intifada was probably one of the largest events that impacted my life and uh, drew drew me into Israel and uh, into moving over here. Um, probably by by far the most uh, effective part of history that that brought me out here so that that's kind of interesting concept and i know that's something that's kind of common in israel or or it's something that's happened 
in the history of Israel where uh, people who are citizens in other other countries would move to Israel and and join the military over there. Um, and I know it's it's called the Lone Soldier Community. Can you guys elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on that? Uh, sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Go for it. Okay, so basically, the Lone Soldier Community is um, is a relatively large group of uh, internationals, um, ranging between uh, two to three thousand soldiers uh, a year, and it basically is composed of anyone who has left their their, their home and moved to Israel uh, in order to join the IDF. Um, and the the name Lone Soldier literally comes from the Israeli roots of a lonely soldier, uh, meaning, you know, no one who has any family, um, you know, their main connection to Israel is Judaism. Um, and it's a, it's a small, close-knit community where, you know, most people know one another. There's always events held, uh, held in order to, to bring those guys and girls together. And uh, it was a real, real gift to be a part of that group for, for as long as I was. The difference between the U.S. military and the Israeli military is kind of the, the proximity to the enemy. Like all the, all of the combat will go on literally sort of uh, not very many miles from where you live. So regular Israeli soldiers will be fighting during the week and come home to their families on the weekend. The lone soldiers uh, don't have those resources, obviously, so they kind of uh, tend to stick together. Um, they hang out socially. It's, it's a group that's really expanded. In my day, there was sort of uh, few and far between. Um, now there's, as Eric said, I think there's between two and three thousand each year. So it's um, it's a growing community. It's um, it's a lot of people from from uh, different countries. Uh, primarily, I think the, the U.S. is probably the, the biggest uh, contributor. And people they're usually people who are Jewish, Christian, or who have some kind of affiliation to Israel who you know uh, want to come and fight. Um, for what's obviously a very good cause. And it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely an expanding group. I heard a statistic not long ago that I think 10% of the Israeli paratroopers is lone soldiers, which is quite significant. Oh, wow. So that, that's kind of an interesting dynamic. You know, in the U.S. military, when units are deployed, and especially like a special operations unit who, whose op- operational tempo is higher than a, a, an infantry unit, like a regular infantry unit, um, well, they would have, they're overseas, you know, so they'll be gone for six months, eight months, you know, whatever their deployment cycle is, and then they'll come home. Whereas in Israel, you guys are fighting pretty much where you live. So how does that work? So like, you you know, if, if there's an operation, you guys are running your operation, and then you go home at night, is that how it works? Um, it really it depends. depends on the unit and the time. It's, uh, it, it depends on if there's sort of, uh, the sort of uh, war or major operation we tend to have every two or three years. You can obviously not, not go home for a month, uh, month plus, but on a regular, on a regular period, it's usually home on an average of once every two weeks. Uh, it depends on the unit. If you're in the sort of an intense training period of a special forces unit, uh, it could be uh, it could be several weeks where you're out training. You don't you don't uh, get to go home. But it's definitely uh, a very different situation from the U.S. Army when people are deployed for months and then uh, come back. You can be in a it's kind of the uh, sort of the schizophrenia of being in a, being in a good unit in Israel. You you sort of being if it's here in the training period, you, someone like Eric who was in uh, our equivalent of the Navy SEALs. 
you can uh, have, be getting your ass kicked uh, 24-7 and then get out on the weekend and go hang out with your buddies and go drinking. It's, uh, it's, um, it's a very sort of small physical space, but it's, uh, it's a big feature of the, the military culture here. It's, uh, it, there's no, there isn't that distance between you and the enemy or you and the intense training. It's, it's physically all very close. Right, right. And so I guess that's kind of an interesting dynamic, but also it's, you know, I know that adds a lot of stress um, to the civilian population, um, you know, always being under that constant threat of some kind of attack. Uh, compared to the U.S., I mean, I know like during World War II, you know, there were bomb shelters built in the U.S. and there were uh, in schools, they had drills in case there was a, an attack or something like that. Because at the time, and such an attack was very realistic, uh, an expectation, you know, they kind of had that expectation. So is that also something that is regular uh, daily life in Israel, where you have like these drills for school children and things like that in case of an attack? 100%. 100%. Actually, uh, a few days ago, Israel did a national test of its uh, siren systems because they updated the uh, radar systems and response systems so that they could actually uh, give designated neighborhoods inside of specific cities um, direct warnings instead of the rest of the city so that they could say an impact is imminent in a certain part of Tel Aviv. These people need to go to a bomb shelter. And then you have a city like Sdeolt where you actually have um, playgrounds that children play in that are reinforced concrete uh, bunkers. So that in case there's a, a rocket launch, they only have a matter of seconds. These children that are trying to play outside, they're able to hide inside of uh, a caterpillar that, that is uh, blast-proof. Wow. So it's, uh, it all the time here. Just two days ago, there was, uh, there was a shooting in a, in a restaurant in downtown Tel Aviv. It was literally just, uh, just a few hundred yards from the IDF central headquarters in Tel Aviv. This is the right bang in the middle of the city. Um, two, um, two Palestinian terrorists came in, literally sat down, ordered dinner, and then just started spraying the room. They killed four people and just another nine. And then, then there was a, a manhunt through the city. And this is, Tel Aviv is pretty much, uh, I would say, the equivalent of Israel, San Francisco. Um, just an area full of tourists, an area full of just people hanging out in restaurants and bars. And this is, it's not, it's not a, it's a pretty regular occurrence. Um, not, not on that level, but it can happen anywhere. It's uh, it's just part of the life here. I mean, you don't see it when you hear people always. Uh, people always uh, friends who come to visit from overseas are always surprised that you don't. It doesn't feel unsafe, but there is that constant readiness. You have to be ready for something that can happen, um, literally anywhere. I mean, the number of terrorists who've been uh, in this last year. There's been what's been what's been called the uh, individuals intifada, um, where Arab terrorists have basically just been stabbing random people in the streets. Uh, in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and, and sort of sleepy, sleepy Israeli towns. And the number of them have been killed by off-duty or reserve or uh, ex-IDF people is just enormous. Uh, just people who are have their personal handgun, um, have literally had to take down terrorists, stabbing civilians in the street. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a strange reality where on the one hand you don't feel it day to day, and the other hand this stuff does happen relatively regularly. And it isn't a sort of one crazy political um, active shooter in the U.S. It's uh, it's people who want to kill you because you're Israeli, because you're Jewish, because you're uh, whatever, and uh, they can literally pop up anywhere. So it's uh, it's a cross between living your life and 
always being ready for that incident. Yeah, you know, it, it's, um, you know, obviously the history of Israel and Palestine and, and the larger Arab world has been a huge, you know, topic the last um, you know, 70, 70 years or so. Um, I actually just finished reading a couple of weeks ago The Six-Day War. And um, what I found interesting about it was there was a great amount of Arab propaganda uh, coming from their governments that they were pushing out to the rest of the world, whether it was through, um, you know, this attack happened, so we retaliated, or through the actual war itself where they were losing and telling everyone that they were winning. And it's almost it was almost done to like a... Because I know uh, every country has some kind of propaganda that they, that they put out, right? But it's almost done to like a kind of like a crazy level where there was almost no truth to what was being said, but it was being uh, propagated. And then, uh, you know, once it, it, once it became clear that the the Arabs lost the war, then it was just like a huge shock shut in. And it's just interesting because it almost seems like not much has changed in the last, um, you know, 60 years, 50 years. When it comes to that kind of mis- disinformation that's put out by governments in the Middle East purposely, and 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 then the, the second and third effects of that is that the Arab people are 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 misinformed on certain issues, and that leads to things like random stabbings and 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 things like that. So, well, how do you guys feel about that? Well, just to take the example of the shooting we mentioned that happened, I think it was two or three days ago, um, Israel was mourning the death of four random civilians who'd gone out for dinner in a, in a restaurant. Um, it was just a total shock. And what happened on the Palestinian streets in Gaza, there were, there were street parties. Uh, they were handing out in the, in the West Bank, they were handing out sweets to children and fireworks and literally celebrating this so-called martyr attack. These two, uh, these two random gunmen just gunning down civilians, like in a completely cowardly move. Um, and it's uh, they're misinformed. About a week ago, there was a, they showed a, a clip of a um, of a school play somewhere in Gaza, and it was a Hamas school, and they literally show your seven year olds um, with their sort of annual school play, and the play was about uh, a bunch of kids dressed up as uh, as, as Hamas terrorists. And they were demonstrating how they kidnap Israeli soldiers, um, kill them. You literally saw seven-year-olds walking around with wooden guns, uh, demonstrating how they were doing God's work and uh, killing Israeli soldiers, abducting Israeli soldiers. And in the end, a, a sort of a 50-year-old head of the school or a Hamas official walks in sort of just um, just brimming with pride over these sort of uh, these kids with that amazing school show. And the whole crowd is just clapping and applauding and they're saying, you know, great. I mean, this is the level of um, this is the level of indoctrination and, and hatred that goes on within the Palestinian cities since since day one, since they're kids. So I understand when you've grown up with that about how evil Israel is and how, forget the fact that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East and it's a it's a country with uh, with civil rights and rules and laws and it's the only literally the only civilized country in the region. When you grow up hearing that, um, the truth has has no consequence at all. 
So these guys turn into adults who then will be happy to gun down anyone in the street and stab them just because they're Israeli or just because they're Jewish. Um, it's, it's a problem not a lot of people understand. We often hear sort of about the, the poor Palestinians and how, how hard done by they are. And we hear very little talk about the fact that Israel has just been under constant attack since the days of the Six-Day War. I mean, the, the, the problems you read about in that book are apparent to this day. Uh, it's the same issues. Unfortunately, it's just a sort of constant uh, cycle. Um, and we've sort of just learned to, to live with it. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, a lot of people are aware of the, the level of, of hatred and indoctrination we, these people have been, uh, have been filled with and what they're willing to do to us and what we have to do to stop them. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's very unfortunate. And um, it just, you know, it, it makes me wonder, like, how, how can you counter it? You know, because in the in the uh, the wars that the United States fight, uh, you know, it's it's in a different different countries, but it's a similar kind of ideology that you face with the um, you know the counterinsurgency and uh, things like that. And from what I've read, and and uh, on the last episode, I had a retired special forces major uh, Rusty Bradley on, and he kind of touched on it briefly, where. It's kind of more than just literally just fighting. Like you need more than bombs and bullets to kind of defeat it, you know. Whereas I think it would take something along the lines of, uh, you know, education, um, you know, revamped uh, hospitals and things like that. But it, it seems like it's something that would take a long time to really stamp out like that kind of dangerous. Uh, hate-filled ideology like is that something that's debated in israel or or that's talked about like how to like a long-term strategy to defeat the ideology of it well the problem with ideology is you you, you can't really beat it um you know i can i can kill someone but the idea that they had in their mind you know they've either spoken to someone or learned that from someone else the issue is, you know, you have generation after generation of children who have unfortunately been brainwashed. Um, you know, a good example is you have Syrians that are seeking refuge and getting into Israel. And, uh, you know, they've, they've woken up in hospitals after being injured and they look up at the doctors and, you know, they see a Jewish doctor and they say, you don't have horns on your head. You're not going to kill me. And, you know, these, these people, they genuinely believe, you know, what they've been told their entire life that we are these terrible human beings that want to drink the blood of their children and uh, kill and destroy everything that's holy to them. And, you know, the, the, the example that Ellie gave about the play down in Gaza, you know, as, uh, as, a, as the nation of Israel, we have zero ability to go in there and affect, you know, what they're doing uh, economically, politically, um, just because of the situation. And then you look at an organization like the U.N., who, you know, they're trying to do all the good, like the right in the world, but they also have no say there. So at the end of the day, you have people running these, these camps and schools teaching hate. Um, and it's a hard thing to combat. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really problematic. People do talk about it, of course, but um, on, the, on a higher level, there's no real plan. There's no real direction towards trying to, to, to combat that. From a military perspective, I mean, it's uh, if you're a soldier in the IDF now, five years ago, ten years ago, 
Uh, it's uh, you don't have to ask yourself too many questions about you know am I doing the right thing. It's uh, literally your daily operations that stop these guys getting to population centers. So it's uh, it's, a, it's a pretty fulfilling uh, experience. I mean, a lot of uh, also as a lone soldier, if you came from overseas to, to sort of uh, you've seen this stuff growing up, you've seen these people doing these kind of things. It's uh, in terms of um, right and wrong, it's pretty obvious that you know uh, stopping these guys getting to to getting the ability to injure civilians is a pretty uh, it's a pretty good cause. I mean, the the greater I think the greater solution to the problem as a whole is uh, is one that would take uh, I'd say probably 50 years if, if we're realistic. I think the problem is every time somebody comes in trying to fix it in one year, two years, and it, then that that fails, and then they try something else for one year, two years, and instead of you know 20, 30 years of, uh, of advancement and, and of moving towards a goal, you have you know 15 periods of two years when nothing has been done. So um, it's uh, from a military perspective. You don't have to ask yourself the bigger, bigger questions. It's uh, it's just a question of, you know, uh, protect the civilian populace who are so close to so many potential attackers. Um, but the greater political situation is more about, um, you know, I think it's it. I think it needs to look for a for a longer term solution, one that's practical. There's a lot of talk about what's right and wrong, and what's uh, you know rights and this and that. But it's there's very little focus on what would actually work, which is, um, which is at the end of the day, you're talking about uh, an enemy who's on your doorstep. So there are major ramifications of that. And I think the focus still isn't on what would actually work rather than, you know, uh, what, what best uh, suits the Palestinians' rights or Israel's rights or, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's surprisingly very little focus on, uh, on, the stuff that pragmatically and practically would just be able to work day to day. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and obviously, you know, it's a complicated thing, and people have been debating this for as long as Israel has been in existence. Um, but you know, one thing that that kind of hit me uh, in, in recent years, because uh, I've always kind of been uh, interested in you know what's going on in the world and things like that. So, you know, obviously there's a large number of people in the world who are critical of of Israel's actions, right? But one thing that stands out to me that they don't seem to to factor in um, before they decide to be critical of Israel is is, is living under that constant threat of attack and and what that does to you mentally. Um, Now, I know in the U.S. there's been a couple of... um, attacks that were linked to um islamic extremism you know someone with these uh crazy ideologies to you know attack uh americans and kill them um just because they're americans yep so imagine you have those guys on your doorstep you know literally sort of living within within uh walking distance of your cities and constantly constantly trying around the clock i mean it's it's Plenty of people could criticize our uh, our um, rules of engagement, for example, and just speaking to friends in the, in the U.S. military, I think the Israeli um, rules of engagement are, are way, way, way stricter, just in terms of who we are allowed to engage and, uh, and the level of caution we are trained to take. I think um, if people, we're not allowed to talk about our, our ROEs, but I think if people knew them, they'd be shocked in terms of how, how careful we are. Um, in, a, in a military environment, even even during wartime, I mean the um, the problem is you have civilian uh, civilian populace that the enemy 
uh, blatantly uses as human shields. Um, just it's a win-win for them. If we if we end up hitting civilians and causing uh, collateral damage, they they call us um, war criminals. And if we don't, then it's just a great shield. So it's a kind of a win-win. If you have no morals, it's um, it's a, just a win-win for you. Um, so that's, that's another issue that makes the, the combat just that much more complicated. Yeah, I remember, what was it, two years ago or so, where, where there was a, a, another flare-up and uh, the Israeli military was called up and you guys were fighting? Yeah, Operation right. Pillar of Defense. Or, yeah, not Pillar of Defense, uh, Operation Protective Edge. Right. Yeah, so yeah, protective edge. I, I know that there were, I think there was like somewhere there was a hospital that was hit with a bomb or something, but there was, um, was it Hamas guys that, that were fighting? Yeah. So there were Hamas yeah, well, uh, soldiers or whatever you want to call them uh, firing rockets from a hospital mm-hmm. and then the hospital gets hit with a missile and then they go, oh, you know, they're, they're killing civilians. But these guys are purposely doing this. And, um, you know, I don't know anybody on the planet who could agree with something like that from the from the Hamas end, you know, where, where they're purposely, like you said, they're purposely doing that. And it's a win-win for them because if you don't do anything, if, if, if let's say you don't fire that missile back at that location, then they successfully launch an attack on you. And if you do and, you know, you end up killing them, well, you know, Two floors below the the roof of the hospital, it's a room filled with children or, or something like that, right? So it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a game. Our end, what was going on? Sorry, what was going on at our end at the same time was that rockets, literally rockets, were raining down uh, every single day on Israeli population centers. So while they while they're using civilians as human shields, they're firing at our population centers. Rockets are landing in the middle of cities. Can you imagine if rockets are raining down in, in New York in uh, Alabama, wherever it may be in the U.S., literally enemy rockets shooting down from from hospitals, from from mosques, from wherever they were firing at to, to use as cover. Um, I think if this American uh, population were facing rockets, literally in their streets, their homes, their their daycare centers, I don't think anyone would think twice about you know just taking them out. They're a threat to threat to the country, threat to the civilians who you have a duty to protect. But we still get criticism for for doing things like that. Even though our civilian populace are uh, are literally under attack. Yeah, exactly. And when um, you know when nine eleven happened and the towers fell, there was no question about you know will there be U.S. retaliation. It was understood. It was just a matter of when it's going to happen, and 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 how kind of you know and <laughs> and I th- I just think that people who are highly critical of Israel. Um, and you know some some countries like are, that's the official stance or whatever. Um, I think they really just do not understand what it means to have that because, I mean, let's be honest. If obviously every life that's taken is a tragedy, um, but in, in the in the larger picture, uh, you know. You know, a few attacks a year is not going to defeat Israel. You know, a few people getting killed every year is not going to, you know, make all the Israelis pack up and leave, you know, and, and the Arabs are going to take over. But I think the the main effect of those small attacks is that you're always under constant threat. And I think, and I think Americans have experienced that a little bit with these random 
attacks that are linked to, you know, ISIS or whatever, whatever group or hate group in the U.S. And then, you know, when you think, oh, well, if I go to the movies and, you know, this this uh, this guy starts shooting people randomly and starts stabbing, it, it, it puts pressure on your brain and it almost makes you want to not do things, you know. So I, I think that's the main effect of what Israel faces. And if if you look at if you can com- compare um objectively you know the way the attacks are launched against Israel versus the response i think it's it's not even a comparison in, in terms of the restraint that's shown and things like that so i know a couple of years ago uh israel pulled out of gaza right and then what happened hamas uh went in yeah well, israel pulled out in 2005 actually and uh, what happened was um i mean to put it into perspective uh, Palestinian women in Gaza used to used to wear swimsuits on the Gaza beach uh, just a decade ago. And then Hamas came in. Um, they're uh, fundamentalist, you know, uh, Islamic crazies. And now there's Sharia law. There's people being strung up in the in the streets. Um, it, there's uh, it's just a whole different place. It's a very very extremist culture. Um, and it's just getting worse and worse. They say that the reason why Israel hasn't taken out the Hamas to date and just just annihilated the operation is because the people waiting in the wings to take over are Islamic Jihad, and even crazier elements, uh, including Al Qaeda down in the Sinai just south of, uh, of Gaza. So it's uh, it's definitely uh, over the last few years it's definitely intensified, and the situation has got got a lot worse. But it's uh, every time Israel gets criticism for not letting in cement to rebuild houses and the second cement goes in, they use it to build tunnels uh, to tunnel out and uh, literally attack random civilians. So it's uh, pretty much uh, a lose-lose on our front. I mean, uh, Eric may be able to tell you more in terms of the Israel's naval operations outside Gaza, um, but a lot of stuff goes on just making sure they don't get rearmed by Iran, by, um, by foreign group funding them and sending them shipments of weapons, etc., to just to and kill us. We're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place uh, when it comes to Gaza. So the so from what I understand, Hamas is pretty much uh, backed by the Iranians, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of, of foreign groups who uh, who fund uh, who funded uh, yeah the Hezbollah, the Hamas, different groups who, who make their business to, to attack Israel. Um, it's a it's a Common problem. I mean, a lot of our, a lot of Israel's intel and naval operations get, work around stopping that stuff getting in through the sea. Because obviously, we have a, we have the Mediterranean, the whole uh, the whole length of our country. So um, that's a big part of it in terms of stopping this, these uh, shipments of arms getting in. So that that's a, a huge, obviously, uh, having to stop these ships coming in. That's a huge responsibility, and just. Like just for as you know, I would like to know: Are there like kind of marine units, like conventional marine units, or are there only uh, special operations uh, type of naval units? Israel has a uh, program that they've uh, designed. I can't go too much into it, but they've uh, basically adapted a certain uh, branch of the regular IDF infantry to cooperate with the Navy to have an amphibious assault. Um, capability. Um, 
but other than that, I can't really go too much into it. Uh, but we do have we do have an option to to land soldiers from the sea in a marine type incursion uh, assault. So I, I read the you know like I said earlier I read the Six Day War. Mm-hmm. Um, were were these elite naval units around during those days, or was that that happened after? Well, the elite the elite naval units have been around since the the founding of Israel. Like uh, the unit that I was in was founded uh, during the War of Independence, um, if not even before. Um, but the unit that I was talking about, the special detachment that works with the Navy, they've been founded over the past couple of years. Um, in the Six Day War, the, the Israeli Navy SEALs were extremely active um, in Alexandria and uh, the Suez Canal. Right. Yeah, I know. I. Um... I read about you know, and it, that's a very good book uh, for anyone who's mm-hmm. interested. It's called the Six Day War, um, and you know, it just adds a lot of perspective to uh, the history of the uh, the relationship between the Israelis and their the Arab neighbors. Hey, so the um, I know the the British SAS were responsible for training a lot of the um, a lot of special operations units around the world, uh, including the U.S. Is that true for Israel as well? Yes, yeah, true. The uh, Israel's uh, equivalent of Delta, Sayeret uh, Matkal, they're based on the British uh, SAS. It's the British SAS that I believe helped, helped set them up in the first place. Uh, there's a lot of sort of similarities between those two units. And to this day, there's a lot of uh, joint SF training that goes on either, either here or in the U.S. or in other countries. Uh, you, you'll frequently see uh, uh, U.S. special operations units training here, uh, or vice versa. I know a lot of uh, a lot of Israeli units send a lot of uh, snipers to the U.S., for example, and we do a lot of joint work and training on, in different fields to this day. And have any of you ever trained with any foreign special ops uh, guys? I have on uh, multiple occasions. Okay, um, so I know. During those type of like joint training events, a lot of information is shared, and um, uh, which really helps both units really for you know their readiness and their tactics and procedures and things like that. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. You know, um, the work that I've that that I did. You know, uh, in Israel, we don't have as many people as in the United States, so our military doctrine is a little bit different, and. Um, you know, one thing that that we kind of gave to um, the SEALs is, you know, our way of entering buildings, working slowly, making sure that, um, you know, as we progress, we don't expose ourselves too much. Um, and on top of that, after uh, after an extended period of training, uh, when I finished, I sat down with the head of uh, BUDS from the United States with another uh, lone soldier that served with me. And we helped figure out a way for them to uh, rearrange part of their training, um, which actually they ended up extending it by two months and, and making it a, a little bit more dynamic and kind of in the same, same style that, that, that we train over here. Um, so there's all, there's all kinds of cooperation, working back and forth, learning from one another um, that's going on all the time. The different mindsets and a lot of stuff is uh, very similar. A lot of stuff is very different in terms of the the different scenarios you find yourself in militarily, or in terms of the the way stuff evolves. 
So that's actually a lot of what we do at Agilite is bringing the Israeli mentality, the Israeli experience and the Israeli gear uh, to solve military problems that, that people have in other places as well. So it's, uh, if you look at the way our gear develops and the kind of situations we found ourselves in constant combat, you know, there's, there's stuff you learn there and there's different ways of doing things that people don't have that, that different perspective. So uh, if you look at the way some of our gear is developed, uh, it's very much based on that Israeli experience and, and mindset. Yeah, I've noticed um, typically, like, you know, you can go online and see videos of Israel soldiers training or whatever, and um, the gear looks very unique to me and, and different from what I'm used to seeing with the U.S. military or I know kind of the... The British military has similar style and look to the uh, the U.S. military. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in gear in Israel and, and, and the weapons and things like that? Sure. A lot of the stuff is raised the budgets. I mean, Israel has been this operation for a long budgets are, uh, I'd say, uh, a lot lower than in the U.S. So what it led to this period, this um, mentality of improvising, as in, you know, you're in a six-day war and you don't have good gear. You just need to make do with what you have. And that, that, that mindset is kind of apparent to this day. Like, If you look at uh, some of, the, some of the, the way our, our company's products develops and some of the best products that come out of the IDF in general are ones that have come out of, a, of uh, this kind of culture and improvisation. I'll never forget, when I, was, um, when I was a radio operator at one point during my service, we had uh, our, our, uh, ears, our ears, sets um, were over our ears and they didn't go into the ear and we couldn't hear very well in, in the middle of operations. So um, what we did was somebody figured out that if you take a Coke bottle top and punch a hole in it and then take the end of a, an IV tube from, from one of the medics and stick it in and tape up the whole thing, it would literally create a channel of sound from the earpiece that was too far from the ear uh, in, channeled into the ear. This was just a literally a improvised product just based from a, on a bunch of guys sitting around saying, I can't hear the radio well enough. What do we do? We're not going to be giving you better radios. Oh, we've got to make it work. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was uh, sitting down with the CEO of uh, Source of Sound, which is the company uh, who make all of the headsets for the IDF. They're actually US, the Israeli branch of Silinx, uh, 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 as they're known in the U.S. And I told him that story, and he laughed and said, hang on a minute. Went out of the, uh, the room and came back with a plastic-molded, made version of what I was talking about. He said that, that was the, uh, the evolution of that product started as a Coke bottle top and the IV tube. Wow. So it, uh, that's very, uh, that's very uh, representative of the culture that goes on here. If you take products like our injured personnel carrier, which is a, it's a very light, fits in your hand product that lets, uh, lets you carry an injured person on your back like a backpack. Um, that product started out as an improvisation within one of the elite units we work with, and they were literally connecting four rifle slings together in a kind of loop uh, as a way of carrying each other on their back instead of in the, in the fireman's carry. And what that would do is that would free up their hands uh, to be able to, to have one guy carry an injured guy on his back and, and be able to sort of go through doorways and, and have his hands free to operate his weapon. So what we did was we, we took that improvised concept and we... Uh, we evolved it. We made a professional version that's now used by uh, special forces units worldwide, uh, the U.S. Recon Marines, a uh, bunch of units sort of all around the all around uh, all around the world. Uh, and that product started its life as just an improvised 
much less good version, but something that was doing a uh, that that rough concept. And now it's a off-shelf Agilite product that's you know tested and um, professionally made. So it's uh, that's uh, another example of one of the one of the products that starts its life out as an IDF improvisation. We actually have a, a bunch of new products coming up. We're, we're going to be bringing out our first polymer products um, within a few months, and one of those uh, solves an age-old military problem that, that everybody has, and everybody uh, in every military, it's a it's a kind of weapon attachment. That, it's a concept that doesn't exist yet that we just patented that we can talk more about sort of down the line. But it's uh, it's another thing that started out as a as a need on that sort of improvising culture, and will at some point this year, uh, hit shelves as a, as a professional product. So what, so let's talk about your company a little bit. Uh, so the main function of your company, Azulite, is to develop gear, right? Correct. We, we develop gear that, uh, the goal is to make soldiers lighter, less bulky, um, keep them, keep all the gear ergonomic so that they can have maximum maneuverability and agility. Um, while carrying everything they have to carry. So if a product can do two things instead of one, then that's a, it's a good starting point for us. And we sort of take that Israeli mentality and that Israeli experience and culture of different gear and make it available to people overseas. Uh, another part of our business is we bring some, some um, brands and, and gear that doesn't exist outside Israel into Israel as well, but that's a much sort of smaller, small, uh, sorry, smaller part of our business. Uh, we've been keeping a pretty low profile this year on the international scene because we're, we're currently building a, a larger line of products uh, that uh, should be starting to be released very soon. Um, we've been doing a lot of special projects with the IDF and with, uh, with different uh, SF units. And um, you should start seeing a lot of that on the international scene within the next few months. So you, you guys work directly with the IDF and, and special units in order to test and develop some of these products? Correct. Yeah, we uh, we we sort of say that our stuff is battle tested, and it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely true. It's stuff no product gets released from us before being put through the ropes in a in a, some kind of elite unit, if not several, uh, of the IDF. So it's uh, it's just uh, it's one of the advantages we have is that we have you know ten different SF units, uh, half an hour drive or less from from our office. So it's uh, we have the uh, sort of the dream of all training grounds for a new product. If a product is, needs to be stronger, needs to be different, needs to be adapted, it's uh, just a, it's a resource we have of being able to put it into five different units um, uh, pretty much immediately, having them try and break it, put it through its paces, improve it. Uh, and also when you have guys who uh, come from this culture of, of gear development, they can be anybody. It's not, it isn't just um, people who develop gears. Every soldier in the IDF is sort of has this, kind of mentality of how can I improve this? How can I make this go faster? Or, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a big part of the IDF culture, I think. So it just leads to the creation of, of creative and interesting gear. So does the IDF encourage, uh, soldiers to do that? And do they also encourage, uh, companies that are not run by the government to, to create some of this gear? I mean, yes, yes, and no. I mean, the um, it definitely. I mean, the army had in-house gear design studios in every single infantry and, and special forces unit until recent years. They definitely um, were interested in, in getting that experience straight off the battlefield and to directly improving the gear. I mean, that's actually been cut back a bit in recent years. Um, they, I'd say, the 
they are open to outside companies like us, um, pro- not as much as in the US. Um, they're not as familiar with uh, the process of working with uh, outside companies um, as, as they are in the US, uh, I believe. But um, people are always, if you come to, come to a unit with a concept that will help them improve their, uh, their, their gear and their comfort on the battlefield, you know, the, the people are pretty open. The unit's pretty open. Hey, so, Elliot, what I'll do is, after every episode, I, on my website, I'll post what I call the podcast notes. And mm-hmm. it'll be a brief description of the, um, the episode and then links and, you know, social media handles for the guests who are on the episode. So if you could send me, um, I know you guys do videos and stuff like that. If you can send me some of the videos um, of some of your sure. products and stuff, you know, I'll list that on there for people to see. Perfect. Good so, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so here's, here's something that I was kind of interested in. Um, I haven't done much research on it, but, you know, I got you guys on now, so I'll ask... How has the war in Syria impacted Israel? Eric, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I would say, I would say exponentially. Um, if you look at how uh, you know, Syria has essentially crumbled um, under the past five years of conflict, um, you know, Israel has been extremely involved on the Golan on uh, both sides to try and keep both Assad and uh, Hezbollah and Iran as far away as possible. So you have um, direct involvement if it's uh, medical aid, um, uh, ammunition transfers, um, even maybe light intelligence towards the more moderate rebels that are in control of um, the areas along the Golan border. Um, You've also seen uh, a larger influx of strikes inside of Syria and Lebanon due to um, Hezbollah's involvement in inside Syria. So we've been able to go after some strategic points that are, uh, that are basically game changers for the next round of fighting with Hezbollah, um, both inside Lebanon and Syria. Um, but in, in, in terms of a, of a flare-up in the north, it's not, it's not a big concern from what I understand. It's more of a, a passive yet active attempt to try and keep, uh, you know, the less of both evils as uh, close to our borders as possible. Well, one of the major things has been getting, making sure that the um, uh, um, Syria's stock of chemical weapons and conventional weapons, just uh, monitoring that closely so it doesn't end up in the, in the hands. You've got people like ISIS just over our border into Syria, um, people you don't want uh, those weapons to fall in the hands of. So that's something that Israel isn't actively involved. It's kind of a sort of a, this is our border, don't, don't you dare kind of thing, but very, very closely monitors what's going on in terms of those, those weapons, conventional and, and chemical stuff that Assad has used on his own people to make sure that doesn't get into the hands of, uh, of ISIS or other terrorist groups who are literally just over our border. So Israel's kind of watching cautiously on that, uh, strategic operations, air force operations to take out the worst of it. Um, also, the IDF medical elements also spend uh, a lot of time uh, 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 just injured civilians, injured uh, Syrians who've just been caught up in the in the fighting over there and have somehow made it to Israel's border and they end up getting patched up and, uh, and treated in Israeli hospitals, the, the lucky ones at least. So I know that 
um, you know, the last year or so, the um, the U.S. policy in, in terms of, uh, you know, how you're going to handle ISIS in Iraq and Syria kind of hasn't been very clear. Um, but I think it's starting to pick up now. I, now there's, there's more, uh, a larger deployment of U.S. special operations to Iraq, and they are um, assisting... Kurd, the Kurdish and Iraqi militaries, and I, I know that they're gaining ground on ISIS in Iraq, and they're they're pushing them back. They're taking territory back, and I'm gonna assume that once they they defeat ISIS in Iraq, which is is in the books, it's in the cards. Um, then they're gonna focus more on Syria, but Syria I think is a little more complicated than Iraq because of the involvement of the Iranians and the Russians, and um, and the Turks as well. So it, Syria is kind of a interesting conflict, or or maybe not interesting is not the right word, but um, complicated. Yeah, complicated. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, we have enough problems with bad neighbors. I mean, we're we have uh, we have some Al Qaeda elements down in the south on our southern border over the Sinai. Uh, we've got you know ISIS on the just over the border on um, uh, into Syria. We've got you know Hamas. Uh, to our uh, to our east, we've got um, Hezbollah who just hate us and try and kill us every few years. On our northern border with uh, Lebanon, we have uh, we pretty much have enough problems to worry about without uh, you know, sort of jumping in on the Syrian conflict as well. So Israel sort of stays out, uh, monitors it closely, and uh, and uh, also it's um, you know it's we definitely don't want to jump into that. <laughs> we have enough problems right now. Yeah, so you said something interesting earlier that, or, or maybe it was uh, Eric. If you said you said uh, part of the reason why uh, Hamas hasn't been taken out in Gaza yet is because of the fear of a more extreme group uh, stepping up, and I think that's kind of been an issue in the Middle East for you know the last sixty, seventy years or so. Um, and and we saw it in Iraq. We saw it in Syria as well. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? You know, like if, there's a one bad group in charge, but if you get rid of them, you know, then an even crazier group is gonna you know step up. Like, how, is there like discussions about that, or, or do you kind of say, you know, we'll just leave this uh, less crazy group in charge? Well, you have you have. Uh, instances like that occurring in, in Syria where you have, um, you know, for example, special American aid towards the the more uh, moderate uh, rebels that aren't uh, radical uh, Muslims. Uh, you know, obviously you have Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other offshoots in, in the area that are, you know, continually, continually attacked by uh, international forces. But the moderate ones are still receiving training and weaponry to fight the Sada regime. Um, but there is no real recipe. I mean, I, I guess the main, you know, chance at fighting that would be the, the chance of fighting, you know, the, the start of radicalization and, and, uh, the education that these guys are receiving. It's kind of like if you cut the head off the beast, there's another one to, to grow back. I think it's Israel definitely looks at, at other countries and see what happened in Iraq and see what happens every time you leave a power vacuum. Generally the, the, the toughest 
the craziest or the ones with the worst ideology will step in and, and take over. So it's, uh, it's a tricky one because our margin of error is pretty small. You know, if you've got Gaza on your doorstep as crazy and, and, and sinister as, as Hamas are, um, and it's hard to believe there could be somebody worse. Um, you know, you've got you do have elements like uh, like Al Qaeda, not very far away, and, and uh, Islamic Jihad, and, and worse. So it's um, it's a very sort of careful policy because what's going on in Iraq when Iraq unravelled again, um, it's you know awful for all involved, but it's not on U.S. borders. Um, this is a place that literally borders with us. So if we get it wrong, uh, things can get pretty nasty pretty soon. So it's a kind of cautious uh, policy. Um, and I think it's sort of, I think we look around at different countries and see what's going on in, in the rest of the Middle East and kind of watch it from a distance and try not to make the same mistakes. Yeah, I've, um, I've read, there was a, a former uh, Delta operator who written a book. He was from like, you know, the, the very beginning of Delta Force, uh, you know, 1979. And he had written a book because he'd still done some type of contracting work and things like that after he'd left the Army. And he had written a book about uh, his experiences. And then in the beginning, he talked briefly about Islamic terrorism. And he mentioned Saudi Arabia, you know, which is a huge uh, kind of... Uh, Sponsor. yeah. And and they provide a lot of money and and uh, and they're highly involved in the indoctrination of a lot of these uh, Sunni terrorist groups. And what he's one of the things he pointed out was, yeah, you know, they they are a problem, but you know, if you take out the Saudi royal family, you know, the the next group that'll step up will be ten times worse. So it, it's kind of like a double edged sword, you know. It's kind of a better of evils, but like uh, the, the problem is in our kind of region, there aren't really any good options. Um, so it's uh, you kind of uh, it's th- this is what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation. It's kind of a, a situation just just perpetual. There's no we don't really see any end in sight. Um, we kind of wish we had somebody to talk to, but it's just uh, we just feel like the other side. Um, there's just no one reasonable on the other side, and part of it goes back to all this indoctrination of and hate and. It's a shame because um, Israeli Arabs, for example, uh, who, who you know part of Israeli society, they have they say they have the best quality of life and standard of living of, of Arabs anywhere. Um, so it's a shame because you know if they just left us alone, we'd be happy to to you know live in peace and and, and just be done with it. But it's uh, like as we said, military there's daily attacks, nonstop, and since Israel's creation over sixty years just daily, non-stop, constant attacks. And it's kind of hard to let you... It's like somebody's pointing a gun at you and they say, uh, you know, um, let's uh, let's talk. So you say, we're well, going to drop the gun and then we'll talk. Um, so it's uh, that's kind of, I feel like, the situation we're, we're faced with. And so all we do is uh, try and deal with the day-to-day and people like us try and create better equipment to deal with it on a, on a day-to-day military basis. And uh, it's pretty much part of the fabric of life over here. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, uh, normally, you know, when we'll we'll close out an episode and have, I'll have the guests like drop all their social media handles and things like that. So, can you drop, you know, your website, social media for anyone who's listening who would like to learn more about Agilite? Sure. Yeah. So, anybody who wants to to check out our gear, they should go to our website, agilitegear.com. 
um, our social media. It's uh, Agilite Tactical Gear on Facebook and uh, Agilite Tactical on uh, Instagram. As I said, we've got a lot of uh, upcoming products, the full line of new products coming out in the next uh, few months, starting very soon. Um, so definitely stuff to watch out for. So, uh, yeah, follow us on, uh, on social media and check out our website and you'll see what's uh, the stuff we've been working on for the past year coming out very soon. Hey, uh, Eric, are you on social media or, or not? No, I'm not. Okay, okay. All right, well, um, you know, it was great talking to you guys, man. I, I, um, I hope that people who are uh, take some interest in, in Israel and, and what's going on over there can, you know, listen to this and learn a little bit about uh, Perfect. You know, what's happening. Um, so when, I, when will it go live, John? Uh, probably Tuesday. Oh, cool. Yeah. You know, I I really enjoyed talking to my friends from over at Agilite Tactical. Um, you know, even though I have a bunch of different guests on here and the audience can really learn a lot from it, I myself learn when I, you know, get to speak to some of these guys. So, you know, just knowing that as we, as he's spoken about in the interview, that you know, in Gaza, there's a, a school play, and and this, the children of this school are dressed up as jihadis, and they're, you know, capturing Israelis and executing them, and and then everyone, like the adults in the crowd, are cheering, and everybody's, um, like, beaming with enthusiasm, and and that's really what this ideology is and in some places it's a little more advanced than that and like you said earlier these groups thrive in those environments where the education is uh, very low where the there's not a lot of money and and that's where they recruit from and you know they get people don't understand like these a lot of these people are are completely radicalized and willing to die for what they believe in and like you said earlier, in order to to defeat that, you have to match that or go beyond it. Well, I've never been to Israel, never spent any time in Gaza, but it sounds like that video is a lot like a lot of the Taliban propaganda video where um, ISIS supporters from um, Afghanistan and Pakistan will go in and make videos of showing kids how to set IEDs and, uh, you know, utilize weapon systems, you know, and they're, they're, they're preteens. These kids are not even 13 years old. Some of them can barely even hold up a, a pistol or a, an AK, um, The disheartening thing is these children should be learning how to read and write. These children should be learning how to speak their native languages. They should be learning how to advance themselves and their way of life. Um, you would hope that the children would be, would be being taught how to create some sort of peace and stability, learning how to conduct a trade metalwork, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, anything, engineering, anything other than what they're being taught. Um, it just goes to the mindset of the evil that is placing these thoughts and ideas into the younger generations. And unfortunately, 
you know, we found that a lot of the kids who were brainwashed into fighting us when they ended up either encountering us, if they survived or if they were captured, they ended up finding out that we were more humane and peace seeking people than the people who were, um, trying to convince themselves to fight for a particular side. So the thing is, is this has been going on throughout time through all of mankind's history. And there's no, there's no charity you can give to, there's nothing you can contribute to other than to try to give people a voice of truth and a voice of reason and hope that in some way, shape or form they'll see it understand that you're trying to do good you're trying to help people and even even after we pulled out of certain very contentious areas in afghanistan now a lot of the leaders tribal leaders and political leaders are saying you know you really were here to help us we didn't realize it can you come back well you don't always get a second chance in life. And, you know, my concern is that a lot of these young people are not going to get a, a second chance in life, but unfortunately time will tell. Yeah, that's for sure. So with that, we'll conclude the episode. Um, major, I just want to thank you for coming back on and, uh, you know, sharing some of your thoughts on, on these type of situations. I know the audience really appreciates hearing it from guys like yourself. Um, so is there any any place, any websites, email, anything you want the audience to check out for the, so they can learn more about you or anything like that? Uh, they can go, if they want to learn more about the book and the story, they can go to lionsofkandahar.com. If they want to get a copy of the book, they can always go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, any place where uh, books are sold, e-readers, any uh me particularly, I'm not a very interesting guy. Uh, I don't do a lot out in the the the, uh, the public and as far as national media and stuff like that. So um, I'm just trying to enjoy the freedom that I fought so hard for. I've I've done my time. Now it's I guess it's time to pass on to a new generation of warriors and hope that things never get so bad that they come back and feel like they need to break the glass in case of war. You can check out my website at globalrecon.net. You can find me on Facebook at FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon and the second is Global Recon underscore Inc. My Twitter account is IG Recon. And you can also connect to us on a professional network on LinkedIn. Just search Global Recon. Now, Agilite Tactical, they sell different kinds of tactical gear, as well as the injured personnel carrier that was mentioned in the episode. Now, if you go to their website and you enter the coupon code Global Recon 10, you'll get 10% off the entire purchase. And this is good through June 21st. So be sure to get to AgiliteGear.com. Uh, whatever purchase you want to make, just enter the coupon code Global Recon 10 and you'll get 10% off. 
So we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.
now we'll get into the interview I conducted with members of Agilite Tactical, who are both former Israeli special operations soldiers. You can check out my website at globalrecon.net. You can find me on Facebook at FB Recon. I have two Instagram accounts. The first one is IG Recon, and the second is Global Recon underscore Inc. My Twitter account is IG Recon. And you can also connect to us on a professional network on LinkedIn. Just search Global Recon. Now, Agilite Tactical, they sell different kinds of tactical gear, as well as the injured personnel carrier that was mentioned in the episode. Now, if you go to their website and you enter the coupon code Global Recon 10, you'll get 10% off the entire purchase. And this is good through June 21st. So be sure to get to AgiliteGear.com. Uh, whatever purchase you want to make, just enter the coupon code Global Recon 10 and you'll get 10% off. So we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.